Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Monday, October 3rd, 2022, the 621st day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month, and you will be supporting me and the work I do and this show as it expands. And if you can't right now or you just don't want to, you can continue listening for free on a variety of platforms. I would only ask that you please tell your friends about the show. So before we get started on an election heavy episode, I want to talk about this cultural meme that nothing is happening. And of course, it's worth noting that a meme is not just a little picture with words on it that gets sent around the Internet. The word meme was coined by Richard Dawkins, and he was using it to describe the way that an idea could spread throughout culture in the same way that a gene could spread throughout society as a product of evolution and reproduction. So the idea that nothing is happening is a meme that has spread throughout culture, including on the right and within MAGA. And that's a bit unfortunate because it's generally just the product of blackpilling. And to be blackpilled basically describes the state of affairs where you are red-pilled, you are awake, you do understand what's going on, but you also think that nothing can be done about it, everything is depressing, and it will only get worse. Now, I grant you that on some level, everything is kind of depressing, but that that's premised on people's predisposition to believe that Everything that's broken will always be broken and cannot be fixed or that until something is fully fixed, it remains completely broken. And I think that the issue people are having is that they are mistaking the results and the process. Now, Donald Trump's not back in the White House. 
the public doesn't fully understand that the election was stolen. And even people who believe it was stolen don't fully understand exactly how or to what extent it was stolen. And the media is generally not covering it. They're still lying about it. People are not in jail. So far, the machines have not generally been removed, although they have been here and there. Same thing with mail-in balloting. Same thing with ballot harvesting. Same thing with the problems in the voter registries. And of course, I understand all that. The results aren't totally there yet, but that doesn't mean that nothing's happening. This isn't some small, quick process where things can just be flipped over without causing major societal upheaval. And I have argued consistently since the fake president undertook his fake inauguration that to do otherwise, to have tried to, let's say, bring in the military or something to override the fraudulent results of the stolen November 3rd, 2020 election may well have put the country on an inevitable course toward civil war. There would have certainly been uprisings in the streets. The left already had that planned. And even if we somehow made it through that stage, they were prepared to undermine the second Trump term in all the same ways they undermined the first Trump term with probably a few extra tricks up their sleeve. And I know that people are extremely frustrated and disappointed with what's gone on so far, but the truth is it could have potentially been much worse. And that is with Donald Trump in the White House, because there are a lot of events around the world and including in this country that Donald Trump simply would not have full control over, even as a second term president riding a MAGA wave into office. From Trump's first term, we knew how much the deck was stacked against him, and we have seen that play out now under the fake president. We have seen how the corruption in the judiciary has made it impossible to even access a lot of the evidence about the 2020 election. And over the last year and a half plus, we have seen that these problems go much deeper than just the reported results of the election. And if Donald Trump had stepped back into a second term, even if we didn't have a civil war, which I would highly doubt we could have avoided, and even if he wouldn't have been undermined by world events and traitorous people inside and outside his administration in the deep state, we would still be left with this problem of a deeply infiltrated government and a deeply ingrained level of corruption in that government. And while the support of the America First movement may have achieved some headway in ridding the government of this infiltration and corruption, the truth is that we wouldn't even really have known where to look. And over the last, I guess it's 19 plus months now, we have learned considerably more about the depth of the problems in this country. And that's something that may not have been possible otherwise. But regardless, we are where we are. And there has been slow and methodical work toward compiling evidence of that corruption, specifically with election fraud, across a number of different lines of investigation. And you have to expect, unless you're blackpilled, that this stuff will bear fruit. Again, if you understand election fraud, then you should know that there's absolutely no way in the world Joe Biden received 81 million real legal American votes. And it's not just a few votes that would have flipped a few key swing states and that Donald Trump could have won if not for those small levels of election fraud. There is election fraud absolutely everywhere to the point where they are selecting who wins in individual races. The system is set up to do that. The system is set up to steal those local elections and the state elections first so that the system can perpetuate itself and make itself more effective as they steal more and more races over time. 
So it's not a small number of votes that were stolen from Trump and that were added on to Biden's total. This is millions, tens of millions of votes to the point where it makes no sense to believe that Joe Biden even won the popular vote, not that the popular vote matters. But Joe Biden didn't have half the country back in 2020, and it's gotten so much worse for him in the last 19 months. The support for Democrats among Democrats has collapsed. As his support collapses and more people come toward MAGA, more people realize that they've been lied to about really, really important issues for a very, very long time. And when they fully understand that, that is when they reach the point of wanting to change things. Because anyone who understands this recognizes that a society is not sustainable when the people don't have the right to vote, when the people have no input into what their government does, even at the local level, that's when societies begin to collapse. Now, what would have happened if Donald Trump had stepped back in and we still had all of this going on beneath the surface? People would have crossed over and voted for Donald Trump and then the problems of the world would have settled in. He'd continue to be undermined. The media would still go crazy about every single thing he did. He would be blamed relentlessly for any problem that might arise. And they would do what they could to shatter the movement. To this day, there are enormous numbers of Trump voters who will not admit in public that they voted for Donald Trump. They will not support the America first agenda in public because they're scared for their reputations and their jobs and their ability to feed their families, which are justifiable concerns. Their fears are not justifiable. Their fears are completely overblown and people's inability to speak up for their own needs and their own beliefs makes it more difficult for other people around them to do it as well. So instead we've embarked on this process and during the process, Things are much less satisfying than we would like them to be. All of this is extremely frustrating. We've all been waiting and waiting and waiting for that real something to happen so that you know, okay, we've got this. The tides have turned. We don't have to be called crazy anymore. We don't have to wonder if we are crazy for still going down this path. But the process is necessary. Because all of this stuff has to be done the right way in the full light of day in front of the public so that when these changes are made, when that shift does occur, the public can by and large accept it. And the members of the public who don't accept it will be far fewer in number and taken far less seriously than they would be otherwise. The point is that we cannot confuse the fact that the mission is not fully accomplished for the idea that somehow the mission has failed and will fail and nothing will get better. The mission is not failing. We are slowly getting to exactly the point we need to get to. The evidence is there. The evidence is overwhelming. And at some point, you just have to trust that the people and the movement and hopefully at some point, the courts are going to act in a way that is fully responsive to all of that evidence and complete the mission. But the mission is ongoing. The mission has not failed. People are still fighting. The movement is advancing and the cause of reversing the 2020 election is advancing. People who respond to every piece of news that is headed in the good direction by saying, okay, well, nothing's going to happen are not being the smart realists. They're just blackpilled. They are simply mistaking the final results for the process. It would be like watching a football game and being mad every time your team got a first down that it wasn't a touchdown. It's just not how it works. Yes, we all want results. We all demand results. We all expect results. But if we don't get the results immediately, it doesn't mean that we failed. That's not how life works. That's not how this process works. And if you've paid attention to it for the last 19 months, it's pretty hard to argue with that. 
And the truth is that most people don't. They just like to say nothing's happening because they're blackpilled or apathetic or disillusioned, all of which I understand. It's just not a reflection of reality. It doesn't make you more of a realist to be blackpilled. I know all of the same things the black pillars are bringing up, and I don't perceive them the way they perceive them on the same set of facts. Now, maybe I'm wrong, right? Maybe the whole thing is going to be a failure and we just have to embrace our dystopian future as fully tracked slaves for the rest of our lives. But since I don't think that anyone listening to the show actually does want to embrace that future, the blackpilling becomes pretty useless immediately. If you are losing faith, if you are blackpilled, just learn more about what's actually going on and you won't feel that way anymore. So let's talk about a few things that are going on. And then I want to discuss the election in Brazil. This is from the Washington Examiner on Thursday. Biden received recommendation to declassify full Khashoggi intelligence report. A government board advised President Joe Biden to declassify a full U.S. intelligence report on Jamal Khashoggi's murder. But months later, the president has yet to do so. Now, why wouldn't Joe Biden want all that out? I mean, surely the media got this story 100 percent correct. So there's nothing to worry about for the fake president. The bipartisan panel, which oversees national classification and declassification policy, recommended in June that Biden release a complete assessment into the Saudi Arabian journalist's 2018 assassination, according to The Wall Street Journal. Two investigations into foreign interference in the 2020 presidential election could also be released in part. The Public Interest Declassification Board said in a letter reviewed by the outlet. And if you're familiar with who Ezra Cohen Watnick is, then you might be familiar with the Public Interest Declassification Board. If you're not familiar with who Ezra Cohen Watnick is, you should listen to my interview with Richard the Saint a few weeks back. Now, the rest of this article goes on about the Khashoggi issue, but this piece about foreign interference in the 2020 presidential election is huge. We already know that there was foreign interference. It was announced before the election and then on the day of the election. And there has been a report into that that was delayed and messed with and finally submitted. But the results of all of that are not fully publicly known. So the Public Interest Declassification Board has recommended that these investigations are released to the public. So it's just a matter of whether or not the fake president will want anyone to see this. And you can imagine what his position would be. Now, today begins the new term for the Supreme Court. Now, even better than ever with a black woman finally on it. And yes, she was very lenient on cases involving pedophiles. But you have to remember how black and female she is. So this is a huge bonus. Now the Supreme Court is going to be perfect. And one of the cases that the new Supreme Court is going to rule on is Moore versus Harper, a case that goes directly to the issue of how much control state legislatures have over their state's elections. And if you want to know how important this decision is, you can just look at the level of freakout being expressed by members of the Uniparty and the propaganda media. This is from the Washington Post today by Adam Jortner. The Supreme Court's biggest case this term threatens American democracy. Moore versus Harper is perhaps the most significant case of the U.S. Supreme Court term beginning Monday. At stake is the question of who runs U.S. elections and sets election law. American elections function through a sometimes problematic but familiar system of checks and balances. Since the days of James Madison, state legislatures, state courts, federal courts, and Congress all weighed in to work out a just system. 
But after the North Carolina Supreme Court struck down the congressional map by its legislature as a violation of the state constitution, two legislators appealed, setting up the showdown in Moore versus Harper. The legislators contend that there should be no checks and balances in elections. Citing a theory promoted in conservative circles in recent years, North Carolina's state representatives claim that state legislatures alone have the power to set election rules and their power over elections is absolute. Some of the briefs filed in Moore versus Harper make the claim that not even the federal government can overturn the decisions of state legislatures when it comes to elections. And if you are the sort of person who is concerned with centralized power, especially power centralized at the federal level, and especially in an era of overt and blatant election fraud and the stealing of elections, then you would be rightly concerned with the advancement of the narrative and the action that follows attempting to do whatever possible to federalize elections to the extent possible. That is exactly what H.R. 1 looked to do since the moment the new Congress was sworn in in January 2021. The stakes of the case couldn't be higher. A decision in favor of the North Carolina legislators would essentially allow elected representatives to make whatever laws they want about elections. It would also give them license to ignore any state laws in setting the rules for elections. No wonder MSNBC commentator Chris Hayes called the case a loaded gun aimed at American self-governance. And this is a pretty odd viewpoint for people who have supported the notion that the Democrats changing all those election related laws in 2020 on the basis of covid were actually doing a good thing. Those state legislatures and also, by the way, some state courts changed their election laws outside of the bounds of their state constitutions. And the courts have found that although the electors who were sent down and certified for Joe Biden have to this point remained in place, despite the fact that they were illegally certified and elected as a result of unconstitutional manipulation of election law within the states. And yet, even though many of the current Supreme Court justices claim to use original intent to interpret the Constitution and laws, a practice that analyzes the meaning of words at the time they were drafted, the media has paid little attention to what the founding fathers intended in crafting the Constitution's election provisions. But their thoughts on this topic were quite clear. They opposed extending this sort of power to state legislatures because they believed legislatures would inevitably abuse it. The Constitution says that the times, places and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. But the Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations to get to that clause. The Constitutional Convention of 1787 debated other options, including allowing states to set the rules for elections themselves. But the delegates had qualms about such a system. James Madison, often called the father of the Constitution, argued that legislatures of the states ought not to have the uncontrolled right of regulating the times, places and manner of holding elections. He thought this because the legislatures, quote, will sometimes fail or refuse to consult the common interest. Governor Morris followed Madison by suggesting that, quote, the states might make false returns and then make no provisions for new elections. The convention agreed with Morris and Madison and therefore unanimously adopted the article giving Congress an explicit check on state legislatures. After the delegates agreed on the Constitution, they sent it for ratification to the states. Several states ratified the Constitution, but made their acceptance contingent on adoption of a Bill of Rights. Some of the ratifying conventions actually submitted proposed amendments to be included in the Bill of Rights. At least three states suggested amendments guaranteeing state legislatures full and untrammeled control over elections. Yet none of these proposed amendments made it into the Bill of Rights, a sign that the first Congress also explicitly rejected giving state legislatures unfettered control over the rules governing federal elections. But the argument in Moore versus Harper has another component. 
While Congress might be able to overrule state legislatures in setting the rules for elections, state courts cannot. If plaintiffs are correct, then state legislatures can effectively ignore their own state laws and constitutions because the U.S. Constitution says legislatures should prescribe election law. But this, too, would have rankled the founding fathers. While students often learn that the Constitutional Convention arose because of flaws in the Articles of Confederation, the founding fathers had another reason for gathering in Philadelphia. They worried that state legislatures were out of control. During the ratification fight, Madison wrote that it was the mistakes in laws of the states, not problems with the Articles of Confederation, that gave rise to, quote, that uneasiness which produced the convention and prepared the public mind for general reform, end quote. And it was the enemies to the Constitution who sought to, quote, reestablish the supremacy of the state legislatures. And it's worth noting that being an enemy of the Constitution at that point before the Constitution existed meant that there were people who thought the Constitution was going to override the state's rights in too many instances. That does not mean that those people were somehow enemies to America trying to influence the law. Madison wasn't alone in seeing state legislatures as a problem. William Plummer, who had represented New Hampshire at the convention, thundered that our rights and property are now the sport of ignorant, unprincipled state legislatures. Alexander Hamilton praised the Constitution for restraining politicians in the state legislatures. And it's worth taking a second and noting that there is a big potential boomerang forming here because absolutely no one tries to change election laws more than Democrats. And they do so at the state level with very little review. And the Congress has not checked their power to do so. Delegates such as Plummer, Madison and Hamilton wanted to limit state legislatures, not give them final say in anything. And as early as 1809, a committee composed of New York's governor and state courts threw out a gerrymandered election map crafted by the state legislature. None of the surviving founding fathers objected. So while the founders did give state legislatures the right to set the times, places and manners of elections subject to checks by the federal government, it strains credulity to claim that they intended to do so with no role for governors or state courts to insist that the legislatures follow their own laws in carrying out this responsibility. Yet North Carolina's legislature is asking the Supreme Court to find the opposite, to rule that state courts cannot force legislatures to follow state constitutions, and they have a serious possibility of success. Despite the claims of several of the justices to subscribe to originalism when they interpret the law, at least three have expressed openness to the theory being propagated by the North Carolina legislature. But the question before the court and before the whole nation is whether the weight of one word in the Constitution abstracted from the context of the founders thinking and their debates over the document matter more than their clearly expressed intent. The drafters of the Constitution never intended to give state legislatures universal power over elections. Madison feared the ability of state legislatures to run elections. And when states asked for an amendment to give state legislatures unilateral power over elections, the first Congress, full of men who had served at the Constitutional Convention, refused. As originalists gain power on the court, Moore versus Harper will test their credibility. If the court rejects the North Carolina legislators claim, they will demonstrate that the words and intentions of the architects of the Constitution still matter. If the court does not, then originalism will have been used to contravene an explicit intent of the Constitutional Convention. The founders worried about extending this sort of unfettered power to state legislatures. Their debates are unambiguous on that point. They rejected the possibility in multiple ways and at multiple stages. Finding otherwise would misconstrue the meaning of one word in the Constitution, and in doing so, damage the vision the Founding Fathers had for checks and balances that safeguarded democracy. Now, let's get the opposite side of the argument. This is from the Raleigh News and Observer, written on September 22nd, so a couple of weeks ago. This is by Pat Ryan. No Supreme Court case on election rules is not a threat to democracy. 
threat to democracy, like racist before it, has become the preferred smear to delegitimize one side of a reasonable political debate. The tactic is diabolical and outrageously effective. Those who level it don't have to engage with the substance of a debate. They only need to assert that their adversary pursues an end so horrendous that any decent American must reject the argument as a matter of patriotic duty. One reason the tactic is so effective is that it's grounded in a kernel of truth. Americans really did enforce a brutal order on the basis of race. Writers really did storm the Capitol and disrupt the peaceful transfer of power. And let's just leave that ridiculous little claim aside for now. That's why the tactic is so diabolical. It seizes fear from a real crisis and transplants it on an invented one. Sooner or later, nearly all proposals from one party get labeled racist or threats to democracy. The tactic drains those labels of meaning and freezes all progress towards consensus. Consider an example. It's fashionable right now to assert the next great threat to American democracy is Moore versus Harper, a case the U.S. Supreme Court will hear next year. The case, which centers on North Carolina, questions whether a state's judicial or legislative branch has primacy in writing laws that govern federal elections. Berkeley professor Robert Reich's histrionics illustrate the general rhetoric surrounding the case. He wrote, it could let extremist state legislatures pick the next president without you. But the case has absolutely nothing to do with electoral votes for president. Rather than some secret plot to steal the 2024 election, the case is most appropriately viewed as yet another battle in a years long separation of powers struggle between the legislature and the judiciary. Legislators argue that the U.S. Constitution gives the state legislature, not state courts, the power to set rules for federal elections, with Congress and federal courts acting as a check, a theory sometimes called the independent state legislature doctrine. I don't know if that's the proper reading of the Constitution, which delegates that authority to each state by the legislature thereof, but it's surely a reasonable question, especially given the very recent history of state courts claiming more and more power for themselves. In 2020, a state judge approved a settlement between the Democratic Party-controlled State Board of Elections and the National Democratic Party's top election lawyer to trash the laws governing the election that the legislature passed months earlier and replaced them with different laws after voting had already started. And the DNC election lawyer they're referring to, of course, is Mark Elias. In 2021, a state court claimed for itself the power to draw legislative districts and appointed three former judges to lead the effort, one of whom went on to endorse a candidate running for Congress under the new maps. Last month, the state Supreme Court all but invalidated the votes of North Carolinians to amend their own constitution to require photo voter ID. Should the judicial branch rewrite election laws passed by bipartisan supermajorities? Is it OK for judges to throw out amendments that the people of North Carolina voted to add to their own constitution? How can it be that the only way to abate the quote unquote threat to democracy is to replace a partisan vote in the state legislature with a partisan vote at the state Supreme Court? Those pesky questions are of little consequence when the real debate is whether or not we will live in a fascist state by the end of the decade. Do you see the problem? Rather than bury the other side's reasonable position by retreating to semi-fascism hysteria, a healthier response would offer sound arguments as to why elected judges, rather than elected legislators, should make these decisions. Instead, we get hyperbole about a secret plot to steal the 2024 election from people who sound awfully similar to the very conspiracists they loathe. And so there are a few problems that this is attempting to deal with. The first is obviously whether or not the state legislatures have plenary power on all things election related. And under a better functioning system, this question might on some level be irrelevant. If we could trust that the state courts were not partisan and were not corrupted and they intended to decide all of these issues on the basis of conflicts with that state's constitution, then it becomes a more interesting argument based on whether or not the state Supreme Courts have the right to override the state legislatures when what the legislatures enact violates 
the state's constitution. But we know all of this has gone way beyond this particular argument, especially when it comes to some of the redistricting stuff, because the redistricting, when they redraw these maps every 10 years after the new census comes out, the biggest discussion is usually centered around what the racial makeup is of the new districts as drawn. And the arguments are about whether or not the districts are somehow discriminatory based on what essentially become racial quotas that must be met for a district to then be legitimate. But there are some deeper issues at play here, too, and some of them we saw reflected in the discussions around the Electoral Count Act last week. They're trying to make it so that states cannot challenge the results as certified by the Secretary of State. They can't declare a failed election and they can't send alternate slates of electors. And in a situation with a George Soros Secretary of State and the George Soros election fraud apparatus, the state legislature would basically have no recourse for dealing with a stolen election. And as the people who are closer to the actual people, the voters, the people who are there to be representing their districts and the needs of their constituents in the state legislature, if you take the power away from these people to declare that their election was illegally held or unjustly decided, then it becomes really difficult to stop the election fraud apparatus from functioning at any level. So it's going to be interesting to keep an eye on Moore versus Harper as this case evolves. Now, speaking of redistricting, it's important to remember that this is done on the basis of the census results every 10 years, because the census results dictate the allotment for congressional districts in each state and state electors for presidential elections. Members of Congress are appointed to the states on the basis of the population of those states. So if a state like California sees its population drop substantially, they can lose seats in Congress. They can lose electors in the presidential election. When another state sees its population increase, that state can gain more members of Congress, more electors. This is from Newsweek today. The outrageous republic distorting census error you've heard nothing about. This is from Ben Weingarten at Claremont Institute. And this is an issue that we've been following pretty consistently for the last few years. Not content with the U.S. Supreme Court's perverse ruling blocking the Trump administration from reinstating a plainly constitutional citizenship question in the 2020 U.S. Census and the Census Bureau's apparent insubordination under Trump. House Democrats recently passed legislation making it still more difficult for a future administration to reinstate the citizenship question and further insulating the Bureau from accountability to any president. While the Ensuring a Fair and Accurate Census Act will do nothing of the sort, it does represent an inadvertent admission of failure in the last census, one of mammoth proportions and with massive political implications that you likely have not heard about. The fact that such a failure has garnered minimal coverage and therefore public attention while manifesting itself in the corruption of our Republican system demonstrates the disingenuousness of our ruling regime's otherwise hysterical democracy defenders. The failure lies in the census count itself, which, according to the Census Bureau's own research, was grossly inaccurate and therefore grossly unfair to the American people. While the Bureau, in conducting its post-enumeration survey, only found a relatively small net undercount in the total U.S. population of 0.24%, or approximately 780,000 people, it also found major overcount and undercount errors when it comes to the 50 states. And strikingly, it appears one party seems to have overwhelmingly benefited from the errors. You can probably guess which. As the Heritage Foundation's Hans von Spakovsky, a former federal election commissioner, has highlighted, per its post-2020 census survey, the Census Bureau significantly undercounted the populations of 
in descending order by percentage, Arkansas, Tennessee, Mississippi, Florida, Illinois, and Texas. So if states with errant population counts to the downside, all but one, Illinois, was a red state. Conversely, eight states were overcounted, all but one of which, Utah, were blue. Of the Democrat-dominated states that received overcounts, among the largest overcount errors could be found in none other than Joe Biden's home state of Delaware, whose population was overcounted by an estimated 5.4%. The Bureau uncovered these errors by surveying a representative sample of households across the country with the same census questions to which they had responded in 2020 and comparing the two sets of answers. These errors flow through our political system in hugely significant ways. For starters, congressional seats are apportioned based on the census count. That apportionment, of course, impacts the Electoral College and therefore presidential races. Numerous states also base their recent redistricting on census figures. And last but not least, some $1.5 trillion in federal funds annually are located to jurisdictions based on the census figures. According to Von Spakovsky, as a result of the errors, historically blue Minnesota should have lost a congressional seat. Light blue Colorado was awarded a new congressional seat to which it was not entitled. The same goes for bright blue Rhode Island. Meanwhile, red states, Texas and Florida should have gained one and two seats respectively, but did not. To put the size of the miscounts in perspective, Minnesota's population overcount of 3.8% equates to more than 215,000 people. Texas's undercount of 1.9% equates to more than half a million people. And that is pretty astounding. Those might sound like small numbers by percentage, but when you look at the raw total, that's pretty incredible. How good can the census be if it can be off by half a million people in one state. The legacy media have harped on reported undercounts of blacks and Latinos and overcounts of whites and Asians, but have not focused on the glaring state level errors. Those errors should be unacceptable to all Americans, regardless of political persuasion. Beyond the fact it is simply embarrassing in the 21st century that the counts could be so inaccurate, regardless of whatever disruption COVID-19 may have had, which might have also been partially mitigated by the fact that more people were presumably home to be physically surveyed. Our Republican system definitionally requires representation in order to work. Evidently, we do not have it, at least not of the fair and accurate kind. Some states, and therefore the voters within them, have more power than others to which they should not be entitled. And as Spakovsky notes, there is no real legal remedy for it, even if there were some constituency that would even seek redress. For the decade between the 2020 census and the next one, our system will have been compromised, period. Yet our political class is totally silent, save for two dozen cities and counties that have challenged the 2020 figures, largely in pursuit of greater federal funding. The silence is deafening, particularly among those who frequently claim democracy and our elections are under threat, that there are no demands for answers about why the census count was so inaccurate and what will be done to ensure such errors are never made again, demonstrates how hollow such concerns about democracy actually are. Finally, this episode also illustrates the folly in removing administrative state entities like the Census Bureau still further from accountability to the voters by way of their representatives up to and including the president. So it's pretty clear that whatever is happening at the census, the results are not reliable and should not be trusted by anyone or used for anything important. If it was just federal funding, that would be bad enough. But the fact that congressional seats are apportioned based on the census count and that electors are apportioned based on the census count means we have a massive problem. Think about the presidential elections and in the run up to these elections where people are proposing various scenarios that there could be some sort of electoral tie. Three electoral votes actually makes a big difference in how campaigns are run. There are entire states with only three electoral votes, and the census has yielded, due to its inaccuracy, basically a free small state for the Democrats. 
Our elections truly are a mess and the abuse is just out there in the open and it is promoted by the Democrats and complicit uniparty communists with little R's next to their name. They're happy to argue for all these abuses and they're happy to tell you why these abuses are actually necessary. Remember, they're fixing racism. They're protecting democracy. They're making sure no very violent insurrection ever happens again because everybody knows the very violent insurrection happened because of the big lie. But it's also worth noting that there's no way we would be discussing all of this if Donald Trump was in the White House right now. It's important that we get to the bottom of all these issues and that these issues are publicized and that our fellow citizens begin to understand what's actually happening in this country. Because all of these problems need fixed, and Donald Trump, even as president, can't just do this himself, especially not while he's being undermined by everyone. Now, another place with really terrible elections is Brazil, and we saw that in play yesterday. They had their federal election day yesterday, but they have a runoff system. So if no candidate achieves 50% of the vote, then it goes to a runoff. And this year's runoff will be held on October 30th. Now, Bolsonaro was leading for most of the evening as the votes came in. But as you might suspect, the avowed communist Lula had his vote come in really late. And there was a huge spike. And of course, we're all familiar with totally unexplainable vote spikes very late in the process because we watched what happened here in 2020. And just like what happened here in 2020 and like what happens in our other elections, the media has basically blacked out the Bolsonaro campaign they peddle Lula propaganda and refuse to cover anything Bolsonaro does accurately. Bolsonaro has been drawing massive, massive crowds, crowds that make Donald Trump's crowds look kind of small. And Lula, like Joe Biden, barely campaigned because while he is one of the most popular politicians in Brazilian history to a certain segment of the Brazilian public. He is also a convicted criminal and one of the most hated politicians in Brazil to the point where he goes out and gets heckled and it looks very bad for the campaign, kind of like if Joe Biden were to go out in public and do things without completely controlled crowds. And when I think about this dynamic, I think about the Clintons, for instance, who have not been convicted of any of their crimes, though there certainly are many. And they remain at least somewhat popular among Democrats. But maybe a better parallel would be thinking about how Barack Obama would be perceived by Democrats if his corruption and criminality were further exposed. If that had happened in 2020 on a widespread basis, you can imagine that a huge portion of Democrats and even a bunch of independents and maybe some Republicans would think that it couldn't possibly be true. And what they need to prove that it's not true is to actually reelect him to power again. So let's turn to an article from 2017 in The New Yorker. The headline is the most important criminal conviction in Brazil's history. This is from July 13th, 2017. On Wednesday, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, who served as the president of Brazil from 2003 to 2011, was convicted of corruption and money laundering. The case against him grew out of a long-running federal bribery investigation known as Operation Car Wash that has sent some of Brazil's richest and most powerful people to prison. But Lula was the most significant figure to fall yet. The judge who decided the case, Sergio Moro, clearly understood the gravity of the situation. He sentenced Lula to nine and a half years in prison, but in deference to the national trauma involved in jailing a former president, allowed him to remain free during his appeal. Yet Moro was unambiguous about his conclusion that Lula had taken kickbacks while in office. In his written decision, he described the scheme uncovered by Operation Car Wash. The state oil company, Petrobras, 
had awarded contracts to construction firms, which then funneled some of the money to lawmakers in Lula's coalition. Lula's precise role in the execution of the scheme remains unclear, but one of the firms involved, OAS, was found to have secretly given him a beachside apartment worth more than $700,000. More details are sure to come out. Lula faces four additional trials for charges, including corruption, influence peddling, and obstruction of justice. After receiving his sentence, Lula was defiant. On Thursday morning, he held a press conference at the Workers' Party headquarters in Sao Paulo. He railed against Moro, whose 260-page ruling, he said, showed absolutely no proof of his guilt. Before the verdict, Lula had been, despite his legal troubles, leading the country's 2018 presidential election polls. And now he vowed to run. Anyone who thinks this is the end of Lula is going to be disappointed, he said, in a voice that has been made gravelly by decades of smoking and a bout of throat cancer. Wait for me, because no one can decree my end but the Brazilian people. Lula's enduring appeal stems in part from the economic boom he oversaw during his term as president, when 30 million people in Brazil were lifted out of extreme poverty. At the time, many Brazilians allowed themselves to dream that the country might finally see widespread prosperity and working class Brazilians identified with his biography. He was the first president of Brazil to grow up poor. Instead of attending school, he sold peanuts and shined shoes. At 14, he got a job at an auto parts factory in Sao Paulo, where he lost his left pinky in a machine. He gained national fame in the 70s when, as a young union leader, he called for the first major workers' strikes in defiance of the military dictatorship. He never lost his lisp, even after being elected to Congress in the 80s. To the country's workers, he was more like them than any politician they had seen before. Lula ran for president three times before winning the 2002 election. In his campaigns, he promised to fight the corruption that helped keep Brazil's elites rich and its workers poor. Once in office, however, he decided not to confront the old system head on. To pass his progressive agenda, he decided to work within the system, building alliances with old school politicians who, even if they had once supported the business-friendly dictatorship, put patronage over ideology. In the venerable Brazilian tradition, Lula's Workers' Party dangled government contracts to win campaign donations from wealthy families, and not every donation was declared to the authorities. With these trade-offs, Lula lived up to an old Brazilian saying, he steals but he gets things done. And this does sound like a narrative that gets broadcast about virtually every communist running for office in major countries around the world. They come into power with a narrative about how they're going to help normal people and workers, and then they immediately resort to corruption and favor trading with the elites and powerful families. They pass a progressive agenda with the support of global communists and the influx of projects that come hand in hand with supporting the global communist agenda create economic activity for a period of time. And during that time, people are, quote unquote, lifted out of poverty. You've probably heard it said many times that the Chinese Communist Party has lifted people out of poverty. And that part of that has been based on trade with the West, that American capitalism has actually helped lift the Chinese poor out of poverty. So it is actually possible for that to happen over some period of time, but it's not sustainable because once that economic activity is created, then the wealth that is generated starts being funneled to the rich and the powerful. One thing that every Brazilian knows is that while Lula is the country's first president to be convicted of corruption, he is almost certainly not the first to have committed it. The difference is that in the past, Brazilian politicians could quash any investigation that threatened them. The irony of Lula's downfall is that while his administration was siphoning billions of dollars from public coffers, it was also allowing an independent judiciary to flourish. That independence led to the investigation. Operation Car Wash, that would eventually ensnare him. There were many in Brazil who celebrated Lula's conviction. They believed him to be uniquely corrupt and blamed the Workers' Party for the country's current economic ills. His supporters, however, were not shy in expressing their dismay. 
Union leaders and left-wing politicians called for protests against what they consider to be a political persecution, part of a right-wing conspiracy to bury Lula's chances of returning to the presidency. This is not democracy. Lindbergh Farias, a senator from the Workers' Party, declared in a video on his Facebook page. The problem with this theory is that Operation Car Wash has also targeted right-wing politicians. The current president, Michael Temer, who helped to orchestrate the impeachment of Lula's successor, Dilma Rousseff, is one of several top conservative figures facing charges of corruption. He has denied the charges. In fact, powerful politicians on both the right and the left have begun to quietly unite against Operation Car Wash. Behind the scenes, the Workers' Party has reportedly worked with Temer's party toward two common goals, amnesty for politicians who took undeclared campaign donations and restrictions on the power of prosecutors. Last month, Lula even defended Temer publicly, accusing the country's prosecutor general of pyrotechnics and saying that he should be punished if his allegations are disproved. In his ruling, Moro cited the 17th century English writer Thomas Fuller. Be you never so high, the law is above you. This is a very new concept in Brazil. In recent weeks, Tamer has made drastic cuts to the federal police budget, and the main task force behind Operation Car Wash was shut down, even though 95% of Brazilians want the investigation to keep going. This is a contest that defies ideological categories, pitting most of the political class against the public. Lula helped millions of the country's poor, but to side with him now would risk undermining the fight against impunity. And so that is a pretty interesting picture of the corruption and an interesting picture of Lula as he used to be depicted. The global propaganda media clearly doesn't care about his history of corruption. They exist to take down Bolsonaro on behalf of the global communists. So the election yesterday eliminated the lower rung candidates, and now the runoff will be head to head between Bolsonaro and Lula. Now, Lula was pushed into the lead at the end of the counting last night, and that's important from a narrative sense. The polls for the last few weeks have showed Lula with double digit leads. He was supposed to be the winner. They were setting up a scenario where Lula could win yesterday where there would not even have to be a runoff. But that effort failed. And of course, the polls were drastically wrong. But they had to get Lula in the lead so that he doesn't look like he is already lost when the runoff actually happens at the end of the month. It would be very difficult to create a narrative that Lula was going to win outright if Bolsonaro had already finished ahead of him in the first round. In the election totals last night, they had 32 million absentee ballots, which accounted for 21% of the overall vote. But getting to the runoff was key because this provides an opportunity for Brazil to see the election manipulation that occurred yesterday and have that become public knowledge in some sense before this runoff election occurs. It's also an example to the world of this problem. We've all been saying for a long time that our claims about election fraud are based on the evidence of election fraud. It's got nothing to do with Donald Trump. Yes, Donald Trump rightfully won the election in 2020 and should be sitting as president. But the claims about election fraud and the goals for this election fraud effort are to eliminate election fraud up and down the ballot and to restore the will of the people to its proper role in determining the future of this country. Now, I have to imagine that they have planned for this scenario, and Bolsonaro is at least projecting confidence in the outcome of the runoff election and relative happiness in not only the fact that they were not able to steal the election yesterday, but that so many of the down-ballot races went his direction. Again, another perfect parallel to 2020. We were told Donald Trump lost by this huge number, 6 million real legal American votes. But as that happened, he also ended up plus 15 in terms of seats in Congress. Naturally, Bolsonaro put out a statement, and here are some excerpts of that statement. 
Against everything and everyone, we had a more expressive vote in the first round of 2022 than the one we had in 2018. There were almost 2 million more votes. We also elected the largest benches in the House and Senate, which was our highest priority at the first moment. We elected governors in the first round in eight states, and we will elect our allies in another eight states in this second round. This is the greatest victory of patriots in the history of Brazil. 60% of the Brazilian territory will be governed by those who defend our values and fight for a freer country. Many people were carried away by the lies propagated by the research institutes, which left the first round completely demoralized. All the predictions were wrong, and they are already the biggest losers of this election. We beat this lie, and now we are going to win the election. This dispute will not only decide who will take office in the next four years. This dispute will decide our identity, our values, and the way we will be seen by the world and by God himself. Let's fight for freedom, for honesty, for our children, and for Brazil. We know the size of our responsibility and the challenges we will face but we know where we want to go and how we will get there. By the grace of God, I have never lost an election, and I know that it will not be now, when the freedom of all Brazil depends on us, that we will lose. Our opponents only prepared for a hundred meters race. We are ready for a marathon. Let's fight with confidence and with increasing strength, certain that we will prevail for the country, for the family, for life, for freedom, and for the will of God. And you have to think that when he remarks about what his opponents have prepared for, he means they were intending to win yesterday. They did not want to go to a runoff. And it's hard to blame them because this is going to result in increased scrutiny, particularly about the election systems. And here is the statement from Donald Trump. Congratulations to President of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro on greatly outperforming inaccurate early fake news media polls and getting into a two person runoff to take place on October 30th with a radical left challenger. Now that other conservatives are out of the race, President Bolsonaro is in a very strong position to win big. More importantly, he will be victorious because the wonderful people of Brazil appreciate the great job he has done and is doing tremendous voter surge over the last 24 hours. So the question becomes, if these are conservatives that were running in the race who are now out for the runoff, does that vote go straight to Bolsonaro? How is Lula going to increase his vote? Will the election fraud be scaled back at all? Can they repeat it again with additional scrutiny? With the importance of Brazil on the world stage in terms of their international dealings with China and Russia in the BRIC system, for instance, and their role in fending off the encroachment of the global communist order in South America, we can see how important this result is going to be. And hopefully it is Bolsonaro, which means hopefully Brazil has figured out its elections and the ways to combat election fraud, or perhaps maybe they're just able to overwhelm the machine. And if that's the case, I think it bodes really well for our elections here. Because this is a global effort. And as we've talked about for the past few weeks, as elections have happened around the world and candidates from the right have become more prominent, while the global communist effort has receded, we may be looking at this global communist election fraud apparatus collapsing in a much broader way than people understand right now. And if that's the case, that is absolutely something happening. So there's no justification for the black pills. You can see things happening in America. You can see things happening around the world. And when you feel like that, remember, you cannot just focus on whether or not the mission has been accomplished. You need to focus on the process. The process is yielding results. The process is yielding progress. And eventually at the end of the process, that's when victory happens. You can't say nothing's happening just because we haven't achieved victory yet. The victory is still coming. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, 
You can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hot!